Good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. If we haven't met before, my name's Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors, and we are so glad that you joined us. Uh, today, we are at the one-third mark in our 15-week-long series where we're walking through the story of Jesus is told in the Gospel of Luke. series is called Jesus According to Luke. And today marks a very important transition in our journey because we're entering part two. So by way of a, a brief summary, we called part one the first few weeks origins because the first few chapters of Luke are essentially an origin story of sorts for Jesus. They tell him, uh, tell us who he is, right? He's the beloved son of the living God. They tell us what his mission is to pour out God's joyful justice all over creation. We get glimpses of some of the resistance that he is going to face along the way. And so now we begin part two of the journey, which we're calling On the Road Again, which I hope I don't need to tell you all. Okay, it's a Willie Nelson song. I'm just making sure we're all on the same page in the room this morning. Fantastic Willie Nelson song. And we're calling it that because what we find here is essentially like, uh, it's like a first century road trip. That's what we find. There ain't no road trip like a first century road trip. For the next 10 chapters, starting in Luke 9, all the way through Luke 19, Jesus is on this long road trip from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. Got a picture of it so you can kind of visualize it. Jesus was up in Nazareth. Remember, he preached his first sermon. It was so bad they tried to kill him for it. And now he's traveling down to Jerusalem with his disciples. <clears throat> and so we'll pick the journey up here where it begins. Luke 9, verses 46 through 56 this morning. It'll be on the screen. If you don't have your Bible with you, it's fine. Luke 9, 46 through 56. Now, an argument started out among them, the disciples, as to which one of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, he took a child, stood him by his side, and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Now, John answered, and he said, well, master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we try to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, don't hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Now, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. This is when the road trip begins. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for Jesus. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Now, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire from heaven to come down and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, hey, you don't know what spirit you were of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village, Luke 9, 46 through 56. So, my wife and I, Allison, we've been married for almost 10 years, coming up on our 10th anniversary. And uh, I think we're going to make it. We're pretty pot committed at this point, and I think we're going to make it. But if we were ever not going to make it, if our marriage were ever to have fallen apart, it would have been in that terminal, uh, hellacious, God-forsaken traffic jam that existed for about three years on I-35 just as you were getting into Detroit. Some of you know the one I'm talking about. It was there for three years. I don't even know how it's possible, but it was there for three years. And um, I won't name any names because my children are getting older now and I cannot embarrass them with impunity anymore. 
Um, but one of my children, who will remain nameless, he had this habit wherein we would be, we'd be road tripping at the East Texas. So we'd jump on I-35, we'd jump uh, east on 7. We'd be there. We'd get into this aforementioned hellacious traffic jam in Troy. And one of my children, I swear this day, it was on purpose. He's only three months old, so I don't know how it could be, but it felt intentional. He would, on cue, when we got into the traffic jam, soil his diaper and start screaming uncontrollably. I know some of you got PTSD from your, your drive to church this morning, so you know what I'm talking about. So there we are. We're in this traffic jam, right? We're at the start of a very, very long road trip, and, and my son is screaming uncontrollably because he soiled his diaper. And so I'm yelling at my wife, and I'm like, would you just... Just take him out of the car seat and change him, man. We're going to be in this traffic jam for an hour. We're going one mile an hour. Nothing bad's going to happen. And my wife's yelling back at me going, we, Austin, we cannot take our child out of his seat on I-35. If everybody saw that, they would take our child from us. And I'm going, maybe they take him now. We pick him back up on the way. It's kind of a win-win for everybody, right? All that to say, it was always a a very depressing start to a very long road trip. And that's kind of what we have here in Luke 9. In fact, reading over it over the past few weeks, I couldn't decide if it was like the funniest or the saddest story in the entire Bible. That's one of the two. Maybe it's even both. Let's give it a little bit of context here. Jesus' 12 main disciples, they've been with him for a while at this point. Uh, and um, in particular, there are these three, Peter, James, and John. They kind of form the inner circle, right? And they have this incredible experience where they get to hike a mountain with Jesus. They see his full glory revealed, and then Moses and Elijah show up. They've been dead for like hundreds of years, and they just show up. And so there they are on top of this mountain, right, Peter, James, and John, with full glory Jesus and two dead guys. They got to be tripping out. You know, they got to be going, man, I thought those were portobello mushrooms we ate on the way up, but what is happening here. That's Moses and Elijah. They've been dead for a few hundred years. So they come down from this incredible experience on top of the mountain, get down, and there's this big crowd of people gathered because this father has brought his son to the disciples because his son's demon-possessed. Wants to know if the disciples can cast the demon out. And the disciples were unable to cast the demon out of his little boy. Okay, that's Luke 9, verse 40. It's very important to remember. I'm going to need you to remember that, okay? The disciples were unable to cast the demon out of the little boy. So with that immediate context in mind, we can better understand our story for today. Now, we don't know exactly how it happens, but somehow the disciples end up in an argument about which one of them is the greatest. The greatest. And we really do have to pause for a moment and just let the absurdity of this sink in, right? Like, uh, I argue with my friends all the time. We argue all the time about everything. You know, like, whose sports team is better? Who's better at a certain sport? Who has the right opinion on a certain topic? We are recreational arguers. We have argued about everything under the sun. Every single thing there is, we have argued about it. But do you know what we have never once argued about amongst ourselves? We have never argued about which one of us is the greatest, I mean, how tacky do you have to be to argue that you are the greatest? Not just the greatest at a particular thing, but just plain and simple, the greatest. Greatest at what? All the things. Just put it all together, and I am the greatest. This is what they're arguing about. I'm the greatest. No, you're the No, I'm the greatest. And so this, you know what this is, right? This is the Troy traffic jam at the beginning of the journey, where Jesus goes, oh, myself, this this is going to be a very, very long trip. 
So he tries to save it. You know, he tries to save the situation. So here's what he does. Their argument, who's the greatest? So he grabs this little kid. He's like, kid, kid, come here. Come here real quick. You guys, you want to know who the greatest is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which one of us is the greatest? Jesus. And Jesus is like, uh, kid, what's your name? Little Ezekiel? Okay. Little Ezekiel here. He's the greatest. He's the greatest person. He's the, whatever you're arguing about. Little Ezekiel is the greatest. Now, will you shut up so we can go? Because we have a very long journey ahead of us. And this object lesson with little Ezekiel, it apparently goes just right over the head of the disciples. Because in response to it, John, right, again, who's one of the inner circle, he decides that actually he knows how to prove to Jesus that, truth be told, he, not little Ezekiel, is actually the greatest. So he says, Jesus, Jesus, you need to see him just raise his hand in the back of Jesus. Before we go, before we go, real quick. Jesus is like, yes, John. And John's like, so, <clears throat> earlier today, uh, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name. So we stopped him because he wasn't with us. Aren't you so proud of us? Do I get my John's the greatest badge? Like right here, you put out, got a great spot for it. And what did I tell you to keep in mind, right? You remember? That just prior to this, what had happened? The disciples had been unable to cast a demon out of a little boy. So let's get this straight. Jesus, he's given the disciples authority to cast out demons, but they're not having so much success doing it. And so when they see this guy who is doing it and doing it successfully, their first response is to stop him from casting out demons in Jesus' name because he's not with them. And so the disciples, and John in particular, right, they're not looking so great right now. This is a pretty petty moment. We can't do it, so we're going to keep him from doing it too. But to be fair, um, I can't understand where John's confusion might have come from. I can't. Because in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is in this argument with the Pharisees, and he says this. This is Matthew 12, verse 30. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Right? This is Jesus talking. He who is not with Jesus is against Jesus according to Jesus. And so let's kind of put this together and see if we can better understand what might be going on in John's mind right now. So at some point pretty recently, John has heard Jesus say, hey, he who is not with me is against me. Which means that John knows that Jesus is not afraid to draw some lines in the sand and tell it how it is. He's just heard Jesus do that. And it's become, you know, somewhat fashionable in modern times to speak of Jesus with a certain, um, I'd call it like a vague sentimentalism. Certain vague sentimentalism where we, we're talking about Jesus and we say things like, well, Jesus would have never blank. Right? Jesus would have never been harsh to somebody. Jesus would have never reprimanded somebody because he was just so nice. Jesus would have never done that. And I'm always, you know, I get what people are saying, but I'm always a little bit conflicted when people say this because, and this might be heresy, but hear me out, because I'm not so sure that Jesus was a nice guy. Okay, I think we're good. At least, at least not by modern nice guy standards. You know, I mean, I don't know if you've read uh, the Gospels a little bit, but Jesus was kind of not afraid to call people out and tell them how it was. Right? Absolutely. And so Jesus was not necessarily a nice guy. But do you know what Jesus was? Jesus of Nazareth was the kindest man to ever walk the face of the planet. That's what Jesus was. 
And when describing Jesus, I really think we ought to use the word kind instead of nice. Because kindness implies a certain depth and firmness, whereas niceness implies a certain superficiality and frailness. Maybe we could put it like this. This is helpful for me to put it like this. Nice people are most concerned with making sure that you like them. Kind people are most concerned with making sure that you are healthy, whole, and blessed. You follow me on this? Nice people are nice, but they're nice because they need to get your affirmation. They're nice because they need something from you. Kind people are not most concerned with getting something from you, but getting something for you, making sure you are healthy, whole, and blessed. And when I look around, you know what, these somewhat, I think lethargic's probably a fair word, state of our communities, our churches, and our families, I can't help but think that at least part of the problem is we got too many nice people. And we don't have enough kind people. Now, to be clear, if you're a jerk, you're a jerk. No excuse for being a jerk. But we got too many nice people. We don't have enough kind people. We got too many nice people who are in it for them and what you can give them instead of kind people who are concerned for you. But all that to say, John's seen Jesus be firm, right? He's literally heard Jesus say, hey, he who is not with me is against me. And so when he sees this guy that he doesn't know casting out demons in Jesus' name, he naturally assumes that this guy must be against Jesus. He has to be. There's no other explanation. But then Jesus throws him this curveball, right? And he says, John, you bozo, want to be Eagle Scout. Stop stopping this guy from casting out demons in my name because he who is not against you is for you. He was not against you, it was for you. So let's see if we can harmonize here, right? These two apparently contradictory things that Jesus has said, right? And so Jesus has said what? He who is not with Jesus is against Jesus. Jesus said that very clearly. But he has also said, told the disciples, he who is not against you is for you. So how how do we make this work? What's Jesus getting at here? So John's mistake, it would seem, is not that he's forgotten that Jesus was just such a nice guy. He would have never called out anybody for being against him because Jesus clearly said, hey, if you're not with me, you're against me. That's what Jesus said. Rather, John's mistake is that he has arrogantly assumed that this guy casting out demons in Jesus' name can't possibly be with Jesus because he's not with John. John's mistake is thinking, well, this guy guy can't be with Jesus because he's not with me. And so what John has failed to understand is that somebody doesn't have to be with John in order to be with Jesus. And I dare say we still struggle tremendously with this, remembering that somebody doesn't have to be with you in order to be with Jesus. Now, in the run-up to the uh, recent election, Dave and I had multiple conversations where somebody would come up to us, and they would say something to the effect of, hey, um, I really appreciate like, how careful and deliberate Vista is dealing with politics. You know, I've seen a lot of churches where that's not the case. People are just careless, and so I really, really, really appreciate how careful we are here. But, right, there's always the but, but... I just don't understand how a Christian could vote for Joe Biden. About five minutes later, we would be having another conversation with someone else. 
they would say the exact same thing, except they would end it with, but, but I just don't understand how a Christian could vote for Donald Trump. And I know it drives some of you crazy. I do. Um, but we love it. Oh, we love it. We love it. We love that we are one of the increasingly rare places in the world, sadly, where people who disagree with each other and disagree with each other deeply about very important things are still learning how to live together and love each other and serve alongside each other because if we ever become a place where that is not true, if we ever become a place where everybody looks the same, acts the same, thinks the same, votes the same, then I will not be here anymore and I hope you are not either because it means Jesus is not here anymore. It means Jesus has left the building. He's gone and you should be gone too. All right? But more to the point, more to the point. When we say that we just can't possibly understand how somebody who disagrees with us about blank, whatever blank is for you, right? When we say, I just can't understand who somebody who disagrees with me about blank could possibly really be following Jesus, we're making a very serious mistake. The same mistake John made. Okay, because here's the deal. I'm going to level with you. God has stuff going on that you don't know about. A lot of stuff going on, in fact, that you don't know about because God is not obligated to run everything by you. I know it's shocking. I feel like God should run it all by me first. What does Austin think about this, Holy Spirit? We should ask him. And here's the deal, right? Here's the deal. Here's the deal. I know you know that. Right? You know that. I know you know that, but if you're anything like me, you know it, but you don't believe it, right? Because you're constantly assuming, right, that somebody who's not with you on something can't possibly be with Jesus because to be with you is to be with Jesus, right? If you're not with me, then you're not with JC. That's what I tell people when they disagree with me. If you're not with me, you're not with JC. I love the way one of our elders puts this. Larry put it this way. We were discussing um, a really tricky issue amongst the elders, and there was some serious disagreement on it. I think it was about whether Dave or I looked better in a cowboy hat for our Vista Volunteers video. I think it's really... If you've not seen this video, it means you're not volunteering, so mm, connect the dots. Um, no, it wasn't that. It, it was something very heavy. It was a very heavy issue. And so the disagreement in the room was really, really heavy. And I'll never forget what Larry said. He said, you know, when I was younger... I tended to assume that God told me everything. Now that I've gotten a little bit older, I, I've come to understand that God often tells other people things that he hadn't told me. And so when there's conflict, I now try to you know, work under the assumption that there's, there's a good chance that it's because God has told you something that he hadn't told me yet. Or God has told me something that he hasn't told you yet. How good is that? How simple, how humble is that when you disagree with somebody about something, even a very important something, when somebody's not with you on something, what if you didn't assume that that must mean they are either stupid or demon-possessed? But instead, you entertain the possibility that God is up to something that you don't know about because God, heaven forbid, is not obligated to run everything by you. And understand now, let, let the hearer understand, I am very much preaching to the choir here. I am, because I can be a very particular, which is a euphemism for controlling person. 
And this, this is a big church. There are a lot of people at our church, which inevitably means that there is much that goes on here that I neither understand nor agree with. I don't know if I'm allowed to admit that. I'm just, as you want to lead pastors, you all do things that I don't understand or agree with a lot of time. I mean, probably shouldn't say this, but I'm in too deep at this point. I have even heard rumors that some of you, that there is in our midst, Aggies. Is it true? Yeah, shine the light on them. There's the cult, right? And here's the deal. I'm pretty sure that to be an Aggie is to be against the Lord. I have a very firm position on this. But dadgummit, I have to make room for the possibility that God is up to something gracious even amongst you Aggies because God has stuff going on that I don't know about because God is not obligated to run everything by Austin Fisher or you, all right? So now let's return to our story here. That in mind, see how it ends. Luke 9, let's wrap up here with verses 51 through 56. Now, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they didn't receive Jesus because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Now, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Jesus turned and rebuked them. So you don't know what spirit you're of. Son of man didn't come to destroy men's lives. Came to save them. So you, you've probably heard, you know, at some point, if you've been to church even once in your life, that Jews and Samaritans, they did not get along. It's kind of a religious family feud where Jews thought Samaritans were impure. Samaritans thought Jews were arrogant. And they were both certain God was on their side. How many of you heard that story before? So... Jesus, he's going to travel through Samaria, sends his disciples on ahead of him, see if he can spend the night in the Samaritan city. But the Samaritans reject him because he's a Jew who's traveling to Jerusalem. And poor John, y'all, like, the man must really hate this part of the Bible. You know, it's rough. Because we're told that when he sees these Samaritans reject Jesus, he says, and I quote, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them. Anybody in here ever been like really mad before? You know, like really, really mad. I've been really mad. I can have a very bad temper. I was in middle school one time. A buddy of mine made me very mad and I pantsed him in front of the entire class. Got his undies too. Whole thing down. It was a terrible thing. It was so wrong of me to do. I can have a terrible temper, y'all. I really can. But do you know what I've just never wanted to do to somebody? I have never wanted to burn somebody alive. I'm not even a good person, but it's never even occurred to me. Maybe I wish they'd get diarrhea, lose their hair or something, but burn some, another human alive is sick. And yeah, here's John, one of Jesus' inner circle. Y'all, he's like one of the people Jesus is going to use to build the church. We're here because of John. And when he sees Jesus rejected by these Samaritans, his first response is to go, well, should we burn them alive? I mean, I don't... I don't see any other options. That's clearly what we need to do here. And Jesus, you know, bless his heart. It's been a long day for him. He just shakes his head. And he says, John, you know, my man, my man, my man, you just don't get it. You don't understand what spirit you were of. I didn't come here to destroy people's lives or burn people alive. I came here to save people's lives. One of my heroes is a man named Benny Walsh. I think we got a picture of Benny. Some of y'all know Benny. Benny's the head of the Temple branch of the NAACP. He's also a security guard at Temple High School. If you're a Temple High student, you've probably seen Benny around. 
And man, Benny, Benny is one of the most likable humans you will ever meet in your entire life, which serves him well in his role because he has to deal with a lot of different kinds of people. I mean, obviously, as head of the NAACP, he advocates for the equality and advancement of people of color in our community. And this, though, also means he's constantly dealing with the police chief, with state and local officials. And as you might imagine, not all these people always agree about everything. I know that's shocking. And so I remember somebody asking Benny one time, I think it was at the Martin Luther King rally three years ago. They said, Benny, doing what you do, and we're dealing with so many different kinds of people, how do you have so many friends? Uh, you would think you would have a long line of enemies, but you just got a long line of friends. How, how do you do that? And I'll never forget what Benny said. He said, I have so many friends because I make myself friendly to every single person I meet because that's what Jesus has asked me to do. Isn't that good? I ha- you want to know how I have so many friends? Friends that should be enemies because I make myself friendly to every single person I meet because that's what Jesus has asked me to do. Let's wrap it up this way. Here in Luke 9, also known as, uh, you know, John's Worst Hits album, we see the disciples struggling to balance Jesus' firmness with his kindness because Jesus of Nazareth was the firmest and kindest person to ever walk the face of the planet because he wasn't afraid to draw lines in the sand and tell people how it was, and people did and still do reject Jesus, but Jesus did not get offended when people rejected him. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus didn't get offended when people rejected him, and so if Jesus did not get offended when people rejected him, what right do you have? And it's a blight on our country right now. We've got all these Christians who are so brittle and fragile and get so offended when somebody, you know, doesn't accept Jesus. You don't have the right to do that. Jesus did not get offended when people rejected him. And so you don't get to either. You don't get to reject people who reject Jesus because Jesus doesn't even reject people who reject Jesus. And this, y'all, this, this is what continues to speak. This is the thing about Jesus that continues to speak across the ages with such beauty and such power, right? His refusal to be against even those who are against him. That's what's beautiful about Jesus. Because Jesus, y'all, I mean, he he does draw lines in the sand. You know, all throughout the gospel, he's drawn lines. But when we take a few steps back, right, we see that what he has actually done is draw a really, really big circle that includes everybody, even you and even me. In other words, Jesus doesn't draw lines between us, but around us. Because the Son of Man didn't come to destroy our lives, but to save them. All of them. Every last one. All right, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We come before you and confess that we don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to exist. God, you have created us freely out of your great love and generosity and though we at times can't help but feel entitled to live to have everything go our way we are not we are creatures you have made who are dependent upon you who are fallen and always in deep need of your grace and so this morning we just come together as a church family we confess all the ways in which we've just you know assumed that you are 
obligated to run everything by us, get our approval, our consultation, assume that everybody who's not with us must be against you. But Jesus, you got stuff going on that we don't know about. Oh, you're out there in the world doing gracious things all over the place. And instead of being insecure or selfish or offended about it, we just want to be grateful for it. We affirm it. We are glad that you're doing stuff that we don't know about because there's much to do. And we ask that you would help us to receive it in our own lives, participate in it as we see it out in the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.